This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Patton Oswalt, has a new Netflix stand-up comedy special. He starts off talking about life in the Trump era. But later, he heads to a much more personal place and reflects on the sudden death last year of his wife, Michelle McNamara, and how he tried to help his seven-year-old daughter through her grief while he was overcome by grief himself. Not exactly funny subject matter, but in describing some of the more absurd things that happened in the aftermath of the death, he manages to get laughs without making light of his pain. His life has taken a new turn. This month he remarried. His new wife is the actress Meredith Salinger. Oswald has appeared in many movies and TV shows. He co-starred on the sitcom King of Queens. More recently, he's appeared in films and TV shows like Veep, Justified, Young Adult, United States of Terror, Two and a Half Men, and Parks and Recreation. He voiced the main character in the Pixar film Ratatouille, which led to a lot of work voicing animated characters. Let's start with the opening of his new Netflix comedy special, which is called Patton Oswalt, Annihilation. I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely surprised that you're in such a good mood, especially with what I'm sure you guys saw what just went down on Twitter like five minutes ago. Did you, you didn't see? No? I'm, I'm kidding, nothing happened, but that's, that's the world we're living in right now, basically, is every, oh, f- what did he do? What, wait, what do you mean? I almost feel like I could get out of a mugging using that for the next couple of years, like if, Someone put a gun in my face. Give me your wallet. You know what? Take my keys, man. It's over. Go check Twitter. What? And I just bolt like I could make it to survive. <laughs> Patton Oswalt, welcome to Fresh Air. So how is the Trump era treating you as a comic? <sighs> the Trump era is treating... You know what it reminds me of? There's a line in um, the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express when... Uh, Hercule Poirot says, has it occurred to you there are too many clues in this room? There are too many unprecedented moments of unpresidential, just jaw-dropping moments of psychotic behavior by our leader um, that after a while as a comedian, you, you go, well, do I hop onto this thing that he just said now or in an hour is he going to say something else that actually is going to be way more important if comedians are canaries in a coal mine we are canaries in a coal mine that is nothing but poisonous gases like i i don't know what to do anymore guy i i can't die anymore for you guys to to tell you to scramble out of this coal mine at this point you know, um, I know a lot of people say to you, oh, this is such a great time for, for a comedy because President Trump provides so much material. But, I mean, really, everybody, every comic is working off of the same material right now, which is President Trump. And so I hear some of the same jokes told by different comics. And it must be really hard to stay competitive and have an edge when everybody is looking to the same person as a source of material. Yeah, it is a horrible time to be a comedian for that specific reason you just said. We have this very, it's a very pungent and livid pool, but we're all scooping the same cup into, and it's the same awful broth. I can only do so many variations on, wow, this stinks. Um, And the other thing, too, is that any material that you write about him instantly is stale the next day because he will do, I, I describe him in the special, he's sour cream in a sauna. He, he immediately goes bad. 
So this new Netflix comedy special, Annihilation, is your first comedy special since your wife, Michelle McNamara's death. At what point did you feel, like, ready, capable of returning to the stage? You know, I I never really felt ready or capable because, you know, when she passed away in April of 2016, I started going back on stage in August of that year completely not ready and completely feeling incapable. But also, I went on stage out of that feeling of, I don't know what else to do. This is what I've always done about everything else. I don't have another outlet to express and work out my grief. And there's a, um, I forget who said this, it's such a great phrase, you either talk it out or you act it out. And I was beginning to kind of kiss the edge during those months of acting it out in very bad ways in terms of of drinking and insomnia and really bad food. And and I, I could see the beginnings of that going down a very, very ugly road. And, you know, luckily I had my daughter there to... Little kids are way more resilient than adults. And so she was just this... She was this this glowing core of life force that I could see living in the world every day while I felt like I was fading out of the world. So then I started saying, well, what was a what was a healthy way that I always dealt with things in my life? Well, okay, stand-up comedy. So that's when – so when I went on stage, it was I am incapable, I am uh, unprepared and not ready, but I don't know any other healthy options right now, so I'm just going to go up and do it. Did you make any mistakes when when you first returned to the stage and were trying to figure out what to talk oh. about and how to talk yeah. about it? Yeah, I mean, I the first time that I went on stage was at the UCB Theater on Sunset uh, Boulevard, and I went on stage and immediately started talking about my wife passing away and me being in grief, and I was throwing the audience right into this wall of spikes but I was throwing myself into a wall of spikes in front of them and it was it just I, I, I went on stage and immediately froze up feeling internally I had voices saying you're being exploitative you're being shallow and selfish and solipsistic and and, and every bad thing that, that that people do to put the because that it didn't feel like the focus should be on me it felt like because what my focus was how is this planet still revolving without Michelle McNamara in it the whole the life existence felt like an insult to to me to to be in the world without her so um having to work that out on stage, but but be funny about it. But, to you know, I, I think that, that personal confessional comedy sometimes goes way too far into, hey, we don't need, we got to get beyond jokes here and really talk about what's real. It's like, well, no, that the beauty of this format is that you give people and yourself the opportunity to hold up something that's unspeakable and not only speak about it, but to laugh about it and see that it's manageable and survivable um, and that you can evolve and adapt beyond it. I mean, that, I think that's the, that's the. the, the oh, I have the, to remember the, that. It's such a good way of putting it. Yeah. So you know, th- and there were moments after I started in uh, doing stand up in August where there were a couple of shows where I treated the audience like, no, you are. This is a therapy session, and you're going to listen to how dark things get. It's like, well, no, that's not your. They, they're also 
fighting their own battles and going through their own struggles. How do you know what they're going through? You you still have to. doesn't mean you got to go on stage and not address it and just be goofy, but you've got to do both. A, a musician can't go on stage and go, guys, no guitar and drums. Let me tell you about what I'm going. No, we're totally cool with you singing about your pain, but sing about it. That's why we came here. To, well, we, and also, we need help. So, you know, it took me a while to start getting towards that. I want to play an example of how you succeed in being funny and just just really sad and upsetting at the same time <laughs> um, from, from your comedy special on Netflix. And so this is a part where you're talking about like two weeks after your wife died, it was Mother's Day. And oh God, you're yeah. grieving, and your daughter, who's like seven at the time, is grieving. And you wanted to do something special for her to take her mind off the fact that her mother isn't there on Mother's Day. So you figure you're going to take her to Chicago, where she'd be surrounded by like her aunts and uncles and cousins, people who really loved her, and she loved them. So you and your daughter go on that trip to Chicago. Everything's worked out well. But then this picks up on the way back. I'm going to spend... Mother's Day, we'll be at the airport and we'll travel and I'll make that day really fun and I'll fill that with adventure and I'll keep her mind off it all day and we'll be home and we'll deal with this all again next year, step by step. So now we're at the airport, we're walking up to the security gate, I'm like, I think I pulled this off. Here, sweetie, here's your ticket. Give her your ticket. She loves to hand up her ticket. Here it is. So I go, here's your ticket. She gives the gate lady her ticket. I give the gate lady my ticket. She's a very old, sweet Polish woman, and, and we're walking onto the plane, just as we're about to go down the tunnel, her hand falls on my so- shoulder, and she says, I hear what happened to your wife. She looks at Alice, to your, to your mother, to be without your mother on Mother's Day. I, I, my mother died when I was your age. I never get over it. I never, I'm still so sad. My father never get over it, it broke him. He die alone, and but when I when you are sad, what I tell myself is that also there are so many other sad people. Okay, have nice flight. That's Patton Oswalt from his comedy special <laughs> Annihilation. Oh, God. Yeah. So uh, when you experience that story in real time, how did it feel? Oh, when I experienced it in real time, there was not a comedy routine there. There was my spine turned to ice and my stomach dropped to my feet. And I did not, you know, all I, I immediately began looking at Alice to make sure that she didn't start crying. But then I realized, because then when she looked up at me, I could see by the way her face was changing that I was starting to cry. So I had to then turn back to the gate attendant and and go well thank you very i'm doing that i must have looked horrific i i put on one of those rictus smiles to stop yourself from sobbing and then took her down the jetway and and sat in the seat with her and we just were like she was like pressed against me crying and and i'm trying to comfort her but then i had my head down and i'm just silently because i don't want to start bawling on the plane because it looks and it was one of those moments of, oh, there's actually no pushing beyond this. Were you worried at that moment in the airport and then on the plane that you would be kind of crying your 
daughter would be crying and someone would recognize you and say, oh, Patton Oswalt, love your comedy <laughs> or so sorry about your wife. I, you probably b- didn't really want to deal with anybody at that moment. No, I was very worried. about. But luckily, when you're when you're hunched over on a plane crying, I think people are okay unless they are the most desensitized person on the planet they they get the keep away vibe of mm-hmm, oh give mm-hmm. this guy and his daughter their moment there were i remember um going to the um funeral i was i didn't talk about this in the in the act because it, there's something it, it just felt so i don't know how to make this funny but i was waiting at the hotel with all the relatives and and i was waiting to get in the car and a couple of people came up and and said oh my god i King of Queens, man. Hey, can we get a, a selfie? And I didn't want to go like like be mean to them. Or it's like, oh, okay. But I know somewhere there's a selfie of me with two very happy people, and and my face is just ashen and looks like I'm sure they're looking and going, oh, something was wrong with him that day. And it was literally the day of my wife's funeral. Pe- two people oh, in, really? in a, front of a hotel wanted to get a selfie with me, and I didn't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, you can't really say like, my wife was just buried today. Yeah, I can't exactly. do I mean, it. I mean, wh- that why I, would I put? <laughs> I can't put that on them. That's not their fault. No, but exactly I, right. Uh, and 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 so I just and and maybe also I now that I wow now that I tell you this story, it it just occurred to me that maybe it was a very desperate grasping at straws of hey maybe if I'm nice to two other people that'll help me like it it, it was that you know something that really pulls you out of grief is helping other people is getting outside of yourself and hey let me help you with this let me go do this let me volunteer here or whatever it just anything to get you outside of your head you'll you'll take i thought we could spend a few minutes kind of celebrating your wife's work michelle mcnamara's work um she has a book that's coming out in february and I want you to explain the, the context of this. This is a book that she's, we should back up and say, she was a true crime writer. And she had a true crime website. And she was working on this book about a, a cold case because she liked to solve cold cases. Um, do you want to explain the case she was writing about? Yeah. Uh, my wife, uh, Michelle McNamara, was writing about um, a cold case that began in the 70s in California in Sacramento and then stretched out over the decades and then the trail went cold down in Irvine in Goleta. Um, It was a a killer that she dubbed the Golden State Killer. So she had a blog called True Crime Diary where she would write about these ongoing cases and uh, an editor at Los Angeles Magazine read about the writing that she did at the time and said, hey, could you turn this into an article? So she wrote a much bigger, uh, even more deeply researched article about this case, and they published it. And then HarperCollins read that article and said, "Oh, this is a book," and had her write the book. And in and you know in, in writing the book, she began to recruit um, retired homicide detectives and cops from all these different jurisdictions and precincts and and cities and she got them to pool information which is very very hard to do but her research was so meticulous and so complete that they would contact each other and say talk to Michelle she knows this person is actually not some weird 
um, you, you know, over-enthusiastic amateur. She wants to put the bracelets on this guy, as cops speak for arresting him. He put the bracelets on him. So um, so, so we, we should say that this, this guy, who Michelle named the Golden State Killer, committed 50 sexual assaults in Northern California and 10 sadistic murders in Southern California over a period of, what, about 10 years. And, and apparently DNA linked those two sets of crimes but they don't know who the individual is and her she wanted to find out like who who is this guy but she died before she was able to do that so you were trying you tried you tried and succeeded to finish the book but it it didn't have obviously didn't have the ending that she hoped to have um and you wrote the epilogue for the book too um i thought i'd ask you to read from the opening paragraph that she wrote for the book. sure. This is the prologue to uh, Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. That summer, I hunted the serial killer at night from my daughter's playroom. For the most part, I mimicked the bedtime routine of a normal person, teeth brushed, pajamas on. But after my husband and daughter fell asleep, I'd retreat to my makeshift workspace and boot up my laptop, that 15-inch wide hatch of endless possibilities. Our neighborhood, northwest of downtown Los Angeles, is remarkably quiet at night. Sometimes the only sound was the click as I tapped ever closer down the driveways of men I didn't know using Google Street View. I rarely moved, but I leapt decades with a few keystrokes. Yearbooks, marriage certificates, mugshots. I scoured thousands of pages of 1970s-era police files. I pored over autopsy reports. That I should do this, surrounded by a half-dozen stuffed animals and a set of miniature pink bongos, didn't strike me as unusual. I'd found my searching place, as private as a rat's maze. Every obsession needs a room of its own. Mine was strewn with coloring paper in which I'd scribbled down California penal codes in crayon. That paragraph really made me think about how, as, as, as she said, when you were sleeping and your daughter was sleeping, she'd be looking at autopsy reports and all this stuff. And so, like, she was living in a, a seemingly normal home, <laughs> but, but she'd, yeah. be go- she, she'd be lost in all these places of, of just really demonic kind of crime. What was it like for you to know that she'd go to these really dark places when you were asleep? I would try to, you know, talk about it with her as much as I could. There was a lot of times that she would, um, like, if if I came home late from a gig or or if she fell asleep and, like, Alice come in, she would, like, wake up and start screaming because she would be having nightmares about the stuff she had seen and the recreating the... Because she would recreate the crimes in her head, what it must have felt like. And, and you see this a lot in the book, the, the sensation of being in your bedroom and suddenly a flashlight's in your face and you realize someone else is in your house. Um, and the level of terror that this guy um, brought to these areas was uh, was diabolical. So I, I was I was worried about her, you know, sleep and her health. But at the same time, I was so... It's very intimidating to be with such an amazing person like that, and especially to be with someone that, during the day, she was up in the morning, she would make Alice breakfast, she would be fussing about school stuff, and, oh, I got to make this, I volunteered to do this thing for the school library, so I got to put this thing together, and then at night, she was going down these alleyways, these electronic alleyways, of the past and the present, so she was, in her own way, like a 
pop culture crime fighter, mild mannered and and just a happy housewife during the day, and then at night while the city slept, you know she wasn't obviously moving around physically, but mentally and and uh, on the internet she was moving around and tracking everywhere. So. I don't know, sharing a life with, with somebody that was operating on that level of existence is very humbling and, and, and extraordinary. You know, I, I was with this extraordinary person. She didn't have chronic pain issues, but she definitely had anxiety and sleep issues because she would interview the survivors of, of this guy's victims. She would interview family members who had lost loved ones to this guy and I think over time and over the years of doing that she could very vividly remember the the interviews with these people and what they had talked about what they lost and how their lives were forever not 100% because of what had been taken and what had not been answered so I think over time she really carried it directly on herself that I want to give these people something like an answer, even though she didn't believe in closure, she did understand that the physical act of knowing that a cell door was slamming on this guy would be really, really helpful to these people. And she was also very, very frustrated. And and any cop will tell you this. A lot of times you will follow a lead and you'll follow the lead for weeks or you'll follow the lead for months. And then you get unshakable evidence that that lead went nowhere. And when you hit that point and realize you just gave this guy another few weeks or another few months head start on getting away from justice, that can really, really take a toll on you psychologically. It can take a toll on you physically. You know, it, it can manifest itself physically in, in sleep problems and digestion problems and in, in whatever. So that's a huge risk in homicide and investigative work. Mm -hmm. So and I think that that is what led her down this road of of using Xanax. And I know she was taking Adderall in the mornings to get up. And, some, you know, before she died, the three days before she died, she really didn't sleep because there was all this new breaking stuff on the case. And I, I believe the FBI was about to reopen it again. And But there were people that were clamoring to get credit that had theories that she knew were going to lead nowhere and just muddy it. So she was all worried about that. So, you know, I think all of that just... She... I think she had... Sometimes she had a lethal level of empathy in her. And... I don't, I'm not going to be glib and say that's the cause of death. The cause of death was a lot of things, but, but that certainly held the door open for the other causes. You know, for those of us who are watching your comedy special, we're watching you talk about your wife for the first time in your comedy, in your televised comedy. But at the same time, like I'm glad to say, your life has been able to finally move forward. In fact, you yes. got married. You got remarried a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I imagine you're still grieving. It sounds like you're still grieving. You know, to to still be grieving and to have found love again is, um, I guess it's it's lucky. It is very lucky and. Acknowledging that you're lucky can be very, very scary because I think that a lot of us like to, I certainly like to think that, well, I make my own luck and I make things better. But but I was lucky enough 
to meet and fall in love with and have someone as extraordinary as Michelle McNamara fall in love with me. And then it's almost like getting hit by lightning twice that the, the statistical odds are so insane. Um, I met someone just as if, if not even more extraordinary in, in this woman, Meredith Salinger and fell in love with her and got her to fall in love with me and to fall in love with Alice. And she is, I mean, she's, I, I, this is going to sound so, uh, facile, but she's Mary Poppins. There's that line in the movie, um, uh, saving Mr. Banks of, oh, she's not there to save the children. She's there to save the husband. That's what Mary Poppins is there to do. And that is what Meredith has done for me and for Alice and has made me, has just, because she is such a life force, it, it almost feels like she was put here to see if her level of life force could revive this death vibe that I was living in and pull me out of it. And she did seemingly effortlessly and the way that we met and fell in love was so extraordinary and so all of it is just can i ask how you met we met because uh we have a friend in common uh this actress martha plimpton and martha likes to have these dinner parties where she invites various people it's almost like a salon where she wants to see people talk and so she invited a whole bunch of people and and, and meredith and i both got invited uh, we had never met each other. I was aware of who she was. She knew who I was. And at the last minute, I couldn't go because of some travel screw-up, and I wasn't able to go to the dinner party. And we have all these mutual friends. We were all on the same invite thread. So Meredith sent me a little Facebook message the next day just saying, dude, you missed some amazing lasagna last night. And I wrote back something like, oh, well, I'll, we'll, we'll go out and get some, whatever, you know. And we just messaged back and forth about everything about books and life and politics and we talked about Michelle and what I was going through and you know all this stuff and from February 28th until May 20th all we did was message each other on Facebook we never spoke we never saw each other face to face and it got to the point where it's like okay same time tomorrow night nine o'clock we would you know be in bed just texting back and forth and and I realized one of the things I missed so much about being married and being so in love was at the end of the day you get to talk in the dark with someone who really really knows you and at the end of the day i was talking in the dark with someone that i really really wanted to know and who you know really wanted to know me so that was it just meant everything and then we finally met i said well let's 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 go to dinner and i i suggested some restaurant and then she went well let's go to um Shutters on the beach. They have a restaurant there, but then we can go walking on the beach and we'll meet in the lobby. Um, because she said, what if we get together and we hate each other and then we're stuck at this dinner? Let's have an escape route, like in case one of us <laughs> wants to bolt. She goes, there's a lot of people that uh, I'll fall in love with them and then I meet them I'm like, oh God, I don't like this person. But you know, so Shutters on the Beach is a hotel in Santa Monica and I'm sitting in the hotel and I feel this hand on my left shoulder and it was... Um, Oh, man, I'm going to get all choked up. Uh, I just, like, my breath froze, and I turned around and looked at her. And But it was like I was I was meeting her for the first time, but it felt like we had been together for years, and we had just had to separate for, like, a week for something, and now we got to see each other again. And, and the first words she said to me were, Oh, you're so cute. And then she, she's gorgeous. So I, I think I said like, okay, duh. and then um, we, I, I literally, I couldn't. So then we went and had 
dinner and walked on the beach and watched people play chess and just and it was just like I can remember every single moment of that evening and from that point on it was like met on May 20th I got engaged on July 4th got married on November 4th because it was you know when you're in your 20s and you're still trying to figure yourself out like oh, I don't know if we should get married let's take some time I get and, and you know that's and that makes sense you should take your time when you're 48 and Meredith's 47 you, you kind of know you can speed the process up like we've we've been out with enough people like uh, okay I know if this is going to work or not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so, so um, Meredith is still acting right oh yeah yeah, she, she's acting. She does a lot of uh, voiceover stuff, a lot of cartoon stuff, a lot of acting. Mm-hmm. And you're doing yeah. a lot of animation stuff, too, in addition to um, 3D acting. What do you call it? Actor acting? <laughs> what do you call That's, it? Yeah. If, if well, trying, I do a lot yeah. of voice acting. And then they do this thing called 3D acting where they make the voice actors get in front of the camera in makeup. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I know how to distinguish, oh, and it's animation, but when you're talking about anim- animation, how do you distinguish that it's actually real and not animated? What do you say? What's the word? I don't know, but I'm going to steal that. I'm going to actually say, <laughs> what are you doing today? Uh, some 3D voiceover. <laughs> I, uh, I dress, this is weird. I do voiceover as this character, but I actually wear the character's costume, and they put makeup on me, and I look like the character. It's this whole new form of voiceover. It's really cool. And people can see you. I'm so stealing that from you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I am. So you have been doing um, a lot of animation. I mean, it's, I think it started with Ratatouille. Um, well, I had done a lot of um, little cartoon bits, like little tiny things here and there before Ratatouille. But Ratatouille was, thank God, Brad Bird was driving around one night. And he was listening to one of the satellite comedy channels, and they played my bit about uh, the Black Angus steakhouses and how the menus have become like these threatening assaults of food. They give you way too much food. And I, you know, I really go into it. And then he said, oh, that's the, re- that's the voice I want. And apparently he made a pencil test of Remy doing that bit. He was doing the Black Angus bit. And he showed it to the Disney people. And they were like, wait, is, is he going to be like cursing like that? He goes, no, 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 this, just listen <laughs> to the voice. He won't actually be using that language. But that's the voice I want for the rat. So that led to then that like kind of really, I was very fortunate that I got to do a lot of voiceover. Can you do some of the voices you've been doing for, for animation lately? Uh, yes. Well, I do um, uh, Mr. McSnorter on the Mickey Racers, which is a <laughs> sort of this uh, pig. But I've come here to do the... <laughs> Oh, snorting that hurts my throat. I also do a character on Bojack Horseman called Pinky Penguin. Uh, Pinky Penguin is Bojack's agent. He's just the most beaten down <laughs> human being on the planet. Um, and then, oh, my, well, I, I can't do it now because it'll rip my voice out. Back on a show called Kim Possible, I did a, a villain named Dementor. And I would um, uh, just scream at the top of my lungs and this it was almost like a like a uh, Klaus Kinski sort of <laughs> insane German like way over the top that we were built this thing like it was just it was nuts and then I also just I do a lot of voiceover with my own voice I'm, I'm the narrator on the Goldbergs on ABC and I do um, video games like uh, Minecraft they also just want my a lot of times I'm I show up with a voice and they go oh no just do your voice dude I go oh okay sorry when did you yeah. know you could do all these things with your voice? 
Uh, I'll be quite honest with you. I didn't know that I could do this until I got to Pixar and started recording. And the fact that they just wanted me to do my voice and not put on a character and that he trusted me to do that. You know, having Brad Bird say, yeah, do that. And, and, and also the fact that I could, when you do a Pixar film, they don't give you the script ahead of time. You cold read it. They put it in front of you and you cold read it. And, and I just, it was something I didn't know that I could do and was and was pretty good at. So thank you, Brad Bird, for showing me this skill that I didn't know I had. So um, your peas just started to pop a little bit. So, so if you could just like speak oh. at a little bit of an angle across the mic instead of directly into the target. I was just telling you how I was good at voiceover to pop in my peas. <laughs> so um, I want to bring up the importance of the silent version of Nosferatu in your life. Oh, my God. <laughs> because you saw it, it's a really scary, uh, eerie um, vampire story. It's like the original Nosferatu film. Um, yeah. From the 19... Is it 20s or teens? 22, Ni- 1922. Yeah. 1922. And you were five years old when you saw it. Probably a big <sighs> mistake to show that to a five-year-old. How did you get to see it, was... it? And tell us about the impression that it made on you. Okay. When I was five years old... And by the way, I'm the story I'm about to tell you, <laughs> all the adults in the story had the best intentions. They were good parents. All right? But I was five years old, living in Tustin Meadows, California. Daddy was a Marine. We're traveling around. And they had a Halloween day at the library for the kids. Yay! And they bring (laughs) us all to the library. And it's little kids, and we make pumpkin cookies. And they tell ghost stories, and we make trick-or-treat bags. And then the adults, um, at the time, uh, before VHS tapes, there was a rental market for 8mm films. You would rent 8mm films, movies. They'd mail them to your house, and you'd show them. So one of the librarians got an 8mm print of F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, 1922 silent film. Now, at the time, the adults were thinking, oh, it's an old silent film. These are fine. These are G-rated for little kids. Um, Nosferatu, even as an adult, and by the way, I'm not even saying this in terms of if you're a little kid or you remember. I watched Nosferatu in the theater three years ago. They, it, it, it got screened. Even today, when I saw it as a 45-year-old man, that is a terrifying disturbing, unnerving, dream logic uh, film where there are harsh jump cuts and strain. It, the whole film is so unsettling and the Im- every image in that film is disturbing. Even the ones that aren't monstrous, it just looks disturbing. And so they projected this 1922 silent film on the little white wall of this library and the little kids were watching it and 10 minutes into it we were screaming and <laughs> freaking out and and I just remember... I remember so vividly thinking this because I because I, I remember trying to, you know, scare my friends with pranks or with monster masks and stuff. All they were doing was putting this square beam of light on a wall. And, and the act of doing that was sending this room into hysterics. And I just remember thinking, I want to get on the other side of that little square and see how they did that. Like, that was my entry into wanting to be in films, in show business, in some kind of creative endeavor. I've never forgotten that. So how come you ended up going into comedy instead of making horror films? Well, I did start making horror films, uh, but it was in middle school and uh, freshman year of high school. I would make little Super 8 uh, slasher films. I had one word. There was a killer with a weed eater because I didn't have uh, access to a chainsaw. <laughs> and um, yeah, I know it's just uh, production value. So anyway, um, 
I, I just couldn't figure out how I was going to, because I was living in the suburbs of Virginia. I had no access to anything like showbiz. But then when I found out when I was 19 that, oh, but you can just go on stage and just start talking. And also at that point, it just seemed like that was going to be way more fun. And I was just very, very focused on Because also, in between all my movie love, in high school, I really, really got into comedy, really, really got into Steve Martin and Monty Python and SNL and Richard Pryor and George Carlin. And I was in a clique of other comedy nerds that really loved comedy. And so um, I just decided to make it a vocation like that became my obsession for a while. But then luckily it led back into movies and writing and, and getting to do that kind of stuff. So I'm wondering if you are at all nostalgic for the time when the big controversy in the comedy world was about rape jokes as opposed to about (laughs) actual sexual misconduct. (laughs) I'm nostalgic, Terry, I'm nostalgic for so much. I think all of us are nostalgic for so much right now of, um, uh, yeah, remember when things were so simple? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, at least with, with rape jokes, you could argue, well... What is the focus of this joke? Is it making fun of the victim? Is it making fun of the rapist or making fun of people's attitudes about rape? How is it being used in context? But you could at least argue, well, but no one's actually getting raped here. But un- unfortunately, um, well, actually, no, no. You know what? It's I don't think it's unfortunate as 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 gross and kind of enervating and demoralizing as all of these revelations are. I think. This is the same thing as for decades, African-Americans were telling people cops are shooting unarmed African-Americans and and, uh, people were saying, no, that's all inflated. It's hysteria. And then we started putting dash cams and body cams. And sure enough, it's everything we were being told for decades is happening. And now for for decades, and I'm just as guilty of um going, I think this is being a little, a lot of the stuff that women were talking about, what they deal with on a daily basis, because I was like, well, I, you know, I, I've never seen that. So I think this might be a little inflated, but I was so completely wrong at the exact rate that, that people were saying it was going on. It was going on and is going on. So, you know, it, it is a real gut check. And, and and I I savor the moments in my life when stuff that I was comfortably um, sure of gets completely shaken up and then I have to relook at everything because that that stripping down is what leads to growth and evolution and and even if it's painful for yourself because I've had to sit down these last few weeks and go I'm like I'm going through my head and I hope every other guy is doing this of of not even like of physical acts but like was there a remark that I made was there a a way that I put things that made, you know, you're just constantly now uh, thinking of that. And and I see a lot of people saying, oh, what men are supposed to now triple, quadruple, quintuple think everything that they say and do. And then you go, well, clearly women have had to double, triple, quintuple, septuple think and say everything that they do. And look what all that they can achieve and do um, with that load on them. Can can we maybe take a little bit of the slack? Would that be okay, Mr. Alpha Male? <laughs> but there's probably also people you thought you were sure of who maybe you're not so sure of. Oh, there were people that were huge influences on me, that were friends that, that, that I looked up to, that I have to go, 
it's like Sarah Silverman wrote, can you love someone who does horrible things? And now we've got to figure out again, we got to refigure where's that line? You know, what is your moral compass? What is your code? And but but shouldn't you have to have that questioned every every generation or so? Isn't that about growth? There were you know, there were there were people in the 30s and 40s, I'm sure very, very good people that thought blackface was fine. And, and these were people that would help out at their church and were charitable, but but also th- there's no harm in enjoying blackface. Who's getting hurt? Well, people are now articulating uh, very eloquently how and why they're getting hurt. So maybe you need to rethink this. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going through the same thing and I'm glad that I am. I am. I'm glad that I'm... And, and also in a sick way, I feel like and this is the worst. This is the worst uh, pop culture way to put it. But all of these rapists and harassers and creeps that are being exposed, overhanging all of this, like the final boss in a video game, is is our president Donald Trump. Twenty four accusers, twenty named accusers, twenty four total. So as each of these mini bosses, if you will, gets taken down. Are we working our way towards the final boss where we can finish the video game and move on to the next thing at this point? Or, I mean, can we at least evolve to the next platform where more people feel like they have solid ground under their feet? Because every time I hear someone talk about the good old days or things were better, but and they just give some date, whatever it is, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. When they talk about that, what they are saying is it was better when fewer people had a fair shot at success and peace and fulfillment. The world was better when fewer people had that shot because they feel like, well, what if I get edged out? You know, and and I will admit to I will admit to having those feelings sometimes and and realizing and taking too long to realize how selfish and frightened that kind of thinking is. Patton Oswalt, thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you again. And um, I know that you're still grieving, but it sounds like at the same time, you've managed to find love and some joy in your life. So, you know, that makes me happy. I'm glad to hear all that. Terry, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Patton Oswalt's Netflix stand-up comedy special is called Patton Oswalt Annihilation. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, I'll talk with an anesthesiologist who describes his work as erasing consciousness, denying memories, stealing time, and immobilizing the body. Dr. Henry J. Prisbillo has written a new memoir. We'll also hear from Jesmyn Ward, who just won a National Book Award for her novel Sing, Unburied Sing, about a boy with a black mother and white father growing up in contemporary rural Mississippi. I hope you'll join us.